Welcome to My Morning Cup, a podcast produced by Costa Media Advisors, a strategic communications company. My Morning Cup, where we have interesting conversations with genuine people. I'm Mike Costa, your host. My guest this week is Mark McKnight. Mark is a native of North Carolina who spent time working summer camps in Mentone, Alabama. As a result, he fell in love with Lookout Mountain. Soon after graduating college and with a new job at Rock Creek, he decided to make Chattanooga his home. Mark is currently the president and CEO of Reflection Riding Arboretum and Nature Center. Mark, welcome to My Morning Cup. Before we talk about your career in the outdoor recreation industry, let me ask, what's in your morning cup? I have full-strength caffeinated coffee from Velo Coffee. Actually, brought you some decaf. Yeah, thank you. I'm looking forward to that. Are you always a uh, full-strength caffeinated guy? Always caffeinated. We actually make it fairly weak at home because I do drink a lot of it, and you know you can get a little too much caffeine. Yeah, I know I can, but you don't put anything in it. No, just good quality roasted beans. The way it should be. Yeah, and I generally do drip. It's just because I'm. It's easy. I do love all the fancy stuff too, but yeah, drips easy and Keurigs are easier. But there's something about drip that's better than a Keurig, in my for opinion. sure. Yeah, Keurigs a step too far. That means I'm at a hotel. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming in. You know, we've gotten to know each other through uh, some of the work we do together. Um, fascinated by you know how you got started in the outdoor industry. I know you grew up in North Carolina, but kind of take us from that start doing the summer camps in Mentone and why Lookout Mountain became so important to you. Sure. Well, I think it, it goes all the way back to my earliest years. I remember spending time outside, mostly with my grandparents. I mostly grew up in Raleigh. Uh, we did live in Huntsville, Alabama until I was about six. And so we were there with my grandparents, even though I, well, I was born in North Carolina. And I think my parents realized that uh, having two kids away from the grandparents was not a good plan. So we, we moved down to Huntsville. That makes sense. So my, my grandparents kind of raised me and they were starting to work less already as I was growing up. So I got to spend a lot of time with them. I always say we went to grandparents' summer camp. Were they outdoor people? Yeah, yeah. My granddad would always take us to Montesano. And I've actually been back. It's fascinating to go back to these places. Uh, you know, Huntsville's done a really good job, like Chattanooga has, expanding trails, yeah. conserving more land. So I've actually been back recently and seen and remembered why I loved that feel of being out in the mountains in the south. And Really, Lookout Mountain is very similar. So mm-hmm. actually ended up taking the job at Alpine Camp, which is in Mentone, Alabama. So it's, if people don't know Chattanooga all that well, which they probably do if they're listening to this podcast. But I always tell people, <laughs> you know, Lookout Mountain kind of terminates there at the river uh, right outside of downtown. But it goes, it stretches through Georgia into Alabama. And it's, the whole thing is just beautiful. And Mentone is one of those really cool little towns. It's mostly summer camps mm-hmm. and second homes. You know, it's a very small town. So who goes to those summer camps? Because I grew up in Memphis, and we knew, I was one of seven. Yeah, We didn't go to summer camps. Oh, yeah. That was summer at our house. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, Well, I mean, uh, unfortunately, it's expensive. There is a scout camp up there, but, uh, but it is expensive. So it draws heavily from the nearby towns. As you can imagine, Atlanta is pretty close. Birmingham was a big one for us. A lot of Mississippi, I think, which was just cultural because Mr. O, uh, Dick O'Farrell, who owned it. He was from Mississippi and was a strong kind of cultural connection. And have you ever seen the summer camps in Mississippi? 
<laughs> they're not. I don't think you'd want to be in Mississippi in the summertime. I think that's the point. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you want to get to the mountains. <laughs> Absolutely. Nothing but red clay and ponds. Yeah, exactly. And it is amazing. You can, even where I work today at the foot of the mountain on the other side of downtown, because it doesn't get light until later in the day, it is so much cooler over there. But, you know, that's what people moved to look out in the first place yeah. is it really was. It's probably 10 degrees difference between that much? being down in the valley and being up on the top of the mountain. Over at Reflection Riding, it's probably about seven, six, seven degrees. If you watch it on your car, you can watch it change. It's pretty cool. So how did you get connected with being a counselor? Uh, was college. So my RA, he was a year or two years ahead of me, and he went there as a kid, and he said, you love this place. Check it out. Um, it was perfect for me because one, you there's you can't really spend any money because you're just busy with the kids all the time. <laughs> so you actually leave with the money that they're paying you. So it's not necessarily great money if you work it all out by the hour. But you hang on to more of it. Yeah, you get room and board, and then you hang on to your money. So we did have nights out. We got uh, nights out where we'd go. You'd generally have to do laundry for one of them, but the other one uh, we would typically come to Chattanooga. And at the time it was, we'd decide to go to a movie or maybe go out to eat at Tony's. The coffee at the time was Gray Friars. Oh yeah. I forgot about Gray Friars. And this was early days, but I did have a laptop towards the end, I think. About what year was this? Uh, that was 2000 through 2004. So every summer. And you went to college where? Hampton, Hampton Sydney. Sydney. And where is that? It's Southside Virginia. Okay. Yeah, the closest town is called Farmville, if it tells you anything. <laughs> um, <laughs> It's an all-male college, one of the last ones left. People always ask me what it was like to go to all-male college, and I have no idea because I didn't go anywhere else. <laughs> well, <laughs> it's just college point. for me. I went to an all-boys high school. It's kind of the same thing. It's just what you had. Yeah, loved it. Uh, the class sizes were fantastic. I think it's about 900 students right now. I had a couple classes that were only a couple of people, and then I had some that were 8, 9, 10 people. was not uncommon. So was outdoor activities a big thing at Hampton, Sydney? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that culture is very, uh, there's a lot of duck hunting. There's a lot of water, of course, in the Eastern Shore. And we had strong connections to D.C. as well. One of my roommates was a Secret Service agent. Um, I mean, not he was, his father, sorry, was a Secret Service. Uh, so we got behind the scenes tour of the White House. That's very cool. Lots of really interesting people that end up finding that place. Uh, I was ultimately was recruited and got a full ride there. So that was Played heavily in my, <laughs> in my decision, for sure. But ended up just falling in love with it. And, and really finding trail running was something that I didn't, I didn't really know that was a thing. You know, I ran a lot when I was wrestling in high school because they always wanted me at a lower weight class. Never got to actually lift any weights or anything. Um, you know, was, my whole life, people had wanted me at a lower weight class. <laughs> and I, I haven't figured that one out. I haven't yet. figured it out. <laughs> I mean, well, you can look at me. I couldn't lose any more you don't weight. Have any weight <laughs> I didn't have any I weight to lose back then either. But I did kind of fall in love with running in high school. But once you get on the trail, it's totally different. And so there was a great trail right behind our, our dorms. And there's a kind of a system of trails just back in the woods. And Talk about how it's different. You're a runner, and then all yeah. of a sudden you discover trail running. How is that different as you're running? Because for me, I'm just focused on, oh, my God, I don't have any breath. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, think about it as, as walking or hiking. So you can walk around downtown, and there's lots of interesting things, buildings, people, cars, whatever. But when you get in the woods, everything changes. For me, there's a sense that we belong here. Um, but I think just being outside on a trail – connects with something really deep. It's good for mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. Your blood pressure will go down. 
your heart rate might go up depending on what you're doing, <laughs> but yeah. your blood pressure goes down. Uh, there are all these all these mental benefits. For me, it's just a calming thing. And the other thing too is there's more variation. I love this about road cycling too. When you're clipped in or you're moving fast on varied terrain, your brain is 100% engaged in that activity. If it's not, you're going to fall on your face. <laughs> and that happens sometimes. You know, you can get distracted and then you're going down and you're like, oh, hold on, I have to get back in the game here. And so there's something that I think is really important for us to check all the baggage at the door, so to speak. Yeah, you're not running or pedaling thinking, God, on Monday I got to do this or I forgot to do that. Or Hopefully not. Yeah. <laughs> and as you develop your attention and you develop your ability to be present in the moment, your brain changes and your performance is better, not just at the sport itself, but I mean, there are all kinds of great studies about athletic performance carrying over into other areas of life where you want to perform. So being present for your friends and family, mm -hmm. being present at your job. I really feel that those endurance sports especially help you develop that. Yeah. And my wife tells me this all the time and I needed to get better at it, but part of great mental health is exercise because it does clear your brain. It gives you a chance to relax. And as you say, your blood pressure mm -hmm. go down a bit. You talked a little bit about your grandparents in Huntsville. Do you have siblings? Yeah. Are they outdoor people too? Was that something that was innate in your family? Yeah, to some degree, I would say. So my interestingly, my sister, not as much. Her entire career, she's worked at IBM. She's a tech person, but she's actually recently started the backyard chicken thing. And so it's just kind of interesting to watch that. So, she, you know, she's not somebody you think of as an outdoor person, but uh, has really gotten into to that's that. That's become and, a big thing here. Yeah. I mean, it's great. Like, it's basically free food. I mean, it's very easy to do. I do think there's something kind of like just being outside and making your own food and seeing, you know, the inputs and what it takes to keep chickens alive. And <laughs> I love it. I think it's great. Yeah. It's funny. I live in North Chattanooga and in the mornings now I can hear roosters mm -hmm. and there's people with anywhere from four to 20 chickens in yeah. their backyard. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Yeah. It's very fun. And then my little brother is out. Uh, my father remarried and have a uh, brother and sister who are younger. And so watching them grow up has been really fun because I was the youngest, me and my sister. Mm -hmm. And so my little brother, Noah, he's a big duck hunter and he's out all the time. Yeah. So I guess, you know, it's a mixed bag, but yeah. So you're at college and you've done the summer camps and it's time for graduating. What do you do? What do you do? Yeah. That's so, a great question. I actually had made the decision to move to Richmond and was going to go work for, well, I was going to go show up. <laughs> Which is, that's always my advice too. Like pick a place you want to live and then show up, start meeting people, connect. Um, you're going to have to take a risk, you know, financially that's a bit of a risk, but you're going to have to find a place to live and then go get connected in the community. But you're For young me, that too. Was be, yeah. This is when you need to do it. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, if you want to go live in some big city or something, do it when you're young because you either will or will not love it. <laughs> and uh -huh. then you'll know the idea of like moving to New York now, it's kind of too late. Not that I want to anyways, but I really do feel like do that when you're young. So at any rate, I was going to just show up at the Martin Agency. They're the ones that came up with the UPS Brown campaign and, and, and some other major campaigns. So I was thinking going to the ad industry. One of our trustees was one of the founders there. So I had met him at some fancy dinner that we had at the college. And I was just, you know, I was literally just going to show up and say, well, I'm here. What can I do? Um, and concurrent with that, I had this outdoor interest and 
we identified that there were not a lot of outdoor stores in some of the smaller towns in the South. And so uh, one of my friends from college and I were kind of writing a business plan, thinking through what it would take to open a uh, essentially a rock Creek, you know, something that had a great selection of top brands in a variety of outdoor endeavors and put that into a smaller town. So Athens, Georgia was what we were zeroed in on. And ultimately he ended up going in a different direction, but I was still having that conversation and looking for kind of mentorship in that. And Dawson Wheeler, who is one of the two founders with Marvin Webb of Rock Creek was the uh, staff kind of leadership development and ropes course instructor that helped us kind of learn the skills that we needed and very quickly put a team together that was going to you know, be able to trust each other and work together to run the summer camp for the whole summer. So he would come in. Uh, I remember uh, Chad Weichel who ended up being one of the partners that we were working on a management buyout for Rock Creek. He was there helping at one point, Rob Piper, Mike Pollock, you know, some people that became really important in my life were there running that crew and doing this leadership development. You mentioned Dawson Wheeler. Did you meet him at the summer camp in Mentone yeah, originally? Yeah, so, yep. so it was him there. So it's those connections you make early on. Exactly. Too. And that is always advice I give to is just connecting with people and talking about what do you envision for the world? And obviously for yourself. I mean, you have to take care of yourself in that process too. But if you articulate the things that you want to see in the world, a lot of times they happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but they don't if you don't talk about it. So I was talking about owning an outdoor store. And I was talking about this with a guy that owns an outdoor store. And so he ultimately said, well, that's stupid. You don't want to start a new store because (laughs) if you call Patagonia, and I have my, actually my morning cup today is this really fun little Patagonia Freeport mug. that's from the the Freeport main store that I just bought. Is that a puffin? It's a puffin, which I did not get to see. Unfortunately, I wanted to go on a trip, uh, but we didn't have the time. So Next time, I definitely want to see that. But at any rate, brands like Patagonia, you don't just call them up and say, I'm starting a new store. I want to sell your stuff. They're, they're just going to say, we're happy with our distribution. So you kind of have to start with the up and coming brands and smaller brands that are willing. They are looking for more outlets. And, and you're taking you a chance on you your, Yeah, you kind of have to like claw your way up. And, uh, and he said, that's stupid. You don't know the business what you should do is work at a retailer that's already successful, learn the business, and then you can do a management buyout because there's a whole generation of people my age, and I'm, I'm speaking as Dawson now, people my age that, you know, they started their stores in the 70s or 80s, and then they're going to want to get out of it eventually. So that was that was actually the the intention from day one was to buy Rock Creek at some point and, and to go. So I, I started my job at I made $22,000 a year, you know, and, uh, and basically when we had the conversation, it it was about my first year I had a cabin and I was responsible for kids in the cabin with a co-counselor, but I was a photographer. I had one of the early digital cameras. It was a Sony of some sort. I don't remember what it was now. It was probably gigantic and took crappy little pictures, (laughs) but it was very cool. And I had a few things going. I was into entrepreneurship from an early age. And so I had started a web design company, put one of the first boat dealers online. It probably was the first boat dealer ever to have their inventory online. I don't know for sure, but this would have been 1998. Wow. And I did all of it. I wrote the HTML by hand. You didn't have these fancy editors like Squarespace and stuff like that. That's just easy. Wrote it all by hand. Took was the this pictures. self-taught? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
Um, I had no idea what to charge. So <laughs> my friend, my best friend's father was a, a sponsored bass fisherman. He was sponsored by Ranger Boats and Evan Rude Motors. And they assign you a dealership that is kind of your, like your home base. And so he had this dealership that was on the coast in North Carolina. And his job was to try to help grow the business. And he was an entrepreneur too. He sold out of his ultra low tolerance metal fabrication company at a young age. And so he was retired at about 45. And so fishing became his obsession, but he couldn't let go of the entrepreneurial thing too. So he got into this boat dealership and he's like, oh, you're doing it all wrong. <laughs> and just had like, you know, 50 things to try to make it better. And uh, he was convinced this website would help because people could do their research before they show up. And because people are, you're always, and we, we talked about this a lot at Rockery too, it can be intimidating to walk into a highly technical environment and whether it's boats, cars, or just all the rain jackets and gear and things that it takes to get outside safely and comfortably, it can be intimidating. Mm -hmm. And the, the last thing most people want to do is immediately engage with the salesperson. So our thesis was that if we put all these boats online and we put all the specs and everything so you could pull them up and compare them, uh, that people would come in more informed and ready to have that conversation with a salesperson. You got them this much closer to a buy. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so this was this was all new at the. I mean, in the late nineties, this was not something that was super common yet. So, yeah, I went and took the photos, and I'm sure the sales guys were like, "What is this kid doing?" Because <laughs> I would ask a million questions about each boat, and it was what a great complex, experience, but very yeah. fun. Yeah. And my favorite part though was when he said, "Well, how much do you think it'll take to do this?" And I was like, "Uh." $4,000, which was just like <laughs> the biggest number I could think of that I thought they would actually take. Um, and they did. And it, it worked out okay. I mean, I, I don't think I, it wasn't like I was making $100 an hour or anything, but <laughs> put me through college and uh, did a couple others. And and so when I got to Alpine, one of the things that we did, I had this digital camera, I took pictures, and we ended up doing this whole online photo thing. Every night I would go upload the photos onto this website and of course you had to have a password as a parent or whatever, but we had, we had satellite internet and it was slow. And if it was rainy or even cloudy at all, things wouldn't upload. And so I was up all night just trying to like restarting when it failed and trying to get these photos up. And, uh, but the coolest thing out of that was that I learned every kid's name because it was far faster to put names on all the photos. If you just knew who they were. And Mr. O was just amazing with this. When somebody drove up in a car, he knew the parents' names, he knew the kids' names, greeted them, and it was very unusual for him to not remember somebody's name. So I took that challenge, and I would print out. I would actually go download all the photos, print them all out in little thumbnails on paper, and write out all the names that I knew. And I would take that back to Mr. O, and he would give me the names of the people I didn't know. And so after a couple of years, because people come back too, so it's not like you're learning 2,000 new names every summer, but as people would come back, I'd learned more and more of them and uh, got to the point where I was embarrassed if I had to go ask them, you know, but there would always be three or four. I'm like, I don't know. Have you found that's made it easier for you today to remember people's names? Um, no, but <laughs> <laughs> I think what it proves is that our minds are elastic and there are all kinds of crazy things we can do if we intend to do it. The thing that for me is I have to remember and I, I do see it visually. So if I can see your name written down, I try to get a card or just write a, a name down because once I see it visually, I can recall it. So yeah, I mean, it, it did help me with some techniques that 
they can help. But that Facebook, for the record, I hate Facebook, but it was the same at college. Before we got to school at Hampton Sydney every year, they mailed a physical Facebook and it had everybody's name and face in it. For me, having that is the way that I can I can yeah. remember any number and of the names. The visual and the, the printed name. In putting together the uh, boat inventory and being able to, to look at everything and evaluate, you took that model to Rock Creek and did their inventory similar way? You're following the thread better than I am, but we yeah, so <laughs> started talking with Dawson and Brooke Scott, who was my direct boss there. They had a, a nascent e-com business that was you know doing fairly well for the time. I, I think it was... It was a five-digit business <laughs> annually. Uh, not a lot. It was supplemented, but it was something course. that yeah, it was something that they they had recognized that they needed and it was going to be important. And so we kind of talked about what they needed and what they didn't need. And there were some things like hardcore code that I didn't necessarily know. I knew my basic HTML that kind of stuff, but I wasn't going to be the guy programming the engine of the website itself. And they were like, "Oh no, we got a whole firm that can do that." Uh, basic HTML was useful, basic graphics. I didn't train as a graphic designer, but knew how to get my way around all that stuff from the web design. And, and I was a writer. So writing descriptions of kind of like why you would want to buy this particular jacket was something that they needed to. So all of those things kind of combined, they said, yeah, I think you'd be a good fit. You should come try it. So I did. And I stayed there for 13 years. And we grew up from that five-digit thing to several million a year online. It's tremendous. It went from, you know, an afterthought to the largest portion of the business. And if I remember correctly, because I was in town at that time, it kind of became a model for a lot of other retailers, did it not? Yeah, we we were trying new things. I mean, I wouldn't have been there that long if it were the same every day. I don't function that way. And so I'm always kind of looking for the next cool thing we can do, play with, whatever. There was one time where I broke Twitter, which was pretty fun, <laughs> or X now, I guess. But How'd you break Twitter? Well, so back to Patagonia, we were very limited in how we could promote because they're so protective of their brand, which works, <laughs> obviously. So we had, I can't remember exactly, I think we had four days a year that we could promote off price and actually say anything about that. And it was a uh, 20% off, I think was the max that we could do. And this is for in-season products. Once you're past the season and things are going on closeout, you can do whatever you can to get rid of it. But the place you're going to make money is actually smaller discounts on things that are fresh inventory. So it was uh, Black Friday and the day before uh, those were going to be our two days. So this was early on in Twitter's kind of evolution. And the way that Twitter started, they worked one-on-one -on -one with advertisers, huge advertisers, Visa, uh, Nike. And they didn't really have a lot of technical infrastructure for the ads. They pretty much hand-coded everything at that time. This would have been 2000 eight, maybe something like that. And their evolutions, they started at the top big advertisers and small advertisers, small businesses, you couldn't advertise on Twitter. And then they opened up a beta program where they were allowing you to just put your credit card in and buy ads. And I, I thought, well, you know, the way that auctions work, if there's nobody there to bid, you get great inventory. Facebook did the opposite. Facebook started with small advertisers, put your credit card in, and they kind of worked their way towards the larger relationships. And so I thought, okay, well, if we can get in there and run some ads now when this is a beta program and there's nobody else really bidding against us, we could probably do pretty well. So we did. Uh, I went in and 
put the card in, created some ads around Patagonia. It blew up and got a ton of retweets and everything else and ran a, a pretty good budget and just kept shoveling budget into it because we were getting such cheap traffic to the website. And we knew, I mean, the e-com is a science. So if you get a certain amount of qualified traffic, it's going to convert at a certain rate. And we just ended up with, it was the biggest day we'd ever had in history. It was enough that Twitter noticed what had happened, uh, which traffic we were driving for the budget that we had. How little you were paying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They loved it. They actually reached out. They called me. I didn't even think it really? was real, but they called me and they said, well, we'd like to do a case study because this seems to have worked out pretty well. And mm-hmm. I was like, yeah, it did. I mean, we all had to go to the warehouse. Everybody in the company had to go to the warehouse and pack boxes. I mean, it was... Brought that much traffic. uh, It was the biggest sales day ever. So uh, I said yes, because why not? So we got a case study done. They put it on their website, which again is just more exposure for us. So I was all about it. And, And then I got my own rep. So we were, as a company, as small as we were, to actually have a sales rep that could work with us on best practices and all that stuff. And it was a great way for them to kind of experiment with new things. They would bring me new toys and I could play with things that they were thinking about and give them feedback. And that was really fun. Because you drew their attention. They mm-hmm. all of a sudden said, okay, we got someone who understands yeah. this and, yeah. and let's test a new product. Exactly. And I had time and you know because I wasn't working at Visa or whatever, uh, I had the time that I could play with new things and do things in a I mean, it was small stakes. It wasn't like a million dollar campaign. Yeah, I could put a couple hundred dollars into something and try it. It was the culture that we had that we could do that. And then at some point they asked me to come speak to their global sales team. And I said yes before I really thought about it. And then we got on a call with all the these these people talking about kind of what it was going to be. And it became clear that it was a bigger deal than I thought it was. So they were flying me to their headquarters in San Francisco. It was going to be about 600 people in the audience for this thing, which is more people I had ever talked to. And it turned out great. Uh, It was on the stage where Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone at Yerba Buena Gardens. And so one of the things that I was not really prepared for is that there is no hiding. Like you're just on the stage. You can barely see the audience because the way they have the thing lit. So you have no idea if you're connecting with the audience. Were you at a podium or did they have There's no podium. No, there's no podium. Kind of like a TED talk. It's, Yeah. Yeah. Wow, that's it's int- intimidating. I bet when they asked you, you think, okay, I'm going to go talk to a sales team and you're in an airport in conference a room. room yeah. you know? <laughs> I was thinking a room with a table, like people around a table. That's what I was thinking, 100%. What a welcome to San Francisco you got. Yeah, it was a speech, but it was fun. I got probably halfway through it and realized that the clock at my feet was counting down, not up. <laughs> and so <laughs> once I figured that out, I was like, okay, I'm okay, because thought I was going too fast. And then I thought I was going too slow. And I'm like, okay, I get it now. <laughs> so a little more prep. I mean, and now one thing I definitely would recommend anybody going to talk to anybody is see the place. I always show up early if I'm talking, which is good. I got a flat tire on the way to one speech. I didn't have time to fix it, but I got somebody to pick me up. <laughs> That's such an important point though, because when you're doing a presentation, if you can get in early or even a day before to get a feel for the room, to make sure the equipment works, because mm-hmm. something's going to happen. It does. It, it always does. happens. I always have backups too. I always send my slides to the mm-hmm. host and I always have a little USB or whatever <laughs> in my pocket. I mean, I, I was a Boy Scout too. I was an Eagle Scout. So yeah, be prepared is a, is a good thing. So you're having all this success with the e-commerce, but you also started Roots Rated. Can you take us through that transition and yep. talk about Roots Rated? Yep. So one of the things that we recognized 
just from working the business, we constantly have people coming in to visit. And as Chattanooga kind of got on the radar for tourism and the Chattanooga Tourism Company was driving more and more people here, people would come into the stores constantly and say, hey, I'm here. I got a podcast with Mike Costa this morning, but then I've got three hours, <laughs> you know, uh, before my next meeting. I need to go for a trail run, but I cannot get lost. I want to run for an hour and a half and it's got to be somewhere close to downtown. And so we would we'd turn the screen around at the front register and try to show you online and then scratch stuff on the back of a receipt and, you know, so many of the things, and we're working on this as a community right now, but it's like, well, you go to this place and you turn down this road that doesn't have a sign (laughs) and then you pull into this sketchy parking lot that doesn't have a sign and then you try to find the trailhead from there and then it was complicated. Yeah. So to us, it didn't seem like a good thing that it was hard to figure out where to go outdoors. So Roots Rated initially was founded to answer that question of where to go outdoors. And it's in the name, but we were part of this Grassroots Outdoor Alliance, which was a larger uh, kind of a, it was a trade association basically of outdoor retailers. And collectively we had the buying power of an REI. So we were able to compete with some of our big competitors as a collective and negotiate some special deals and, and different inventory that the big box stores couldn't have and all kinds of cool stuff. So our thesis was, if this was happening at Rock Creek, it was probably happening everywhere else. And so we started vetting that out and having talking to people. And they said, yeah, yeah, we do that too. And we pitched this idea of the Grassroots Outdoor Alliance coming in and rating all their favorite places and putting it together. And so that's where Roots Rated came from. And we did. We created a network of content providers. Um, the retailers did not have the time or uh, skill to put together good descriptions and create the content for us. So we ended up hiring freelance writers all over the country, uh, peaked somewhere over 200 writers, and we had five full-time editors at one point. Probably gave you better quality control too. Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And we started with nothing. I mean, we really didn't have any, uh, we didn't have any big investment early on. Uh, we started pretty modestly with an investment uh, from Toad & Co., Gordon Seabury there, and then Dawson Wheeler pulled in some other folks as we started going. But we launched the site, and it was good. I mean, I still talk to people that were using it up until very recently. They did, they did finally shut the website down, but it was great. And Chattanooga's trying to take that now and basically do a, a local roots rated with that be yeah, fair yeah. description. And there's some good apps out there now, and we were always um, – Well, we found a really cool thing, which is that all the tourism companies, they're called DMOs, but destination marketing organizations, they all have budget to try to drive people to their destination. And so once we figured out how to connect with them, they funded a lot of the content creation. And that was when we really started going. And then we we ended up becoming a technology company. So that ultimately what had value once we raised venture capital and, and had that pressure of you know, multiple times return is what venture capital wants to see, like, you know, a hundred X or so, um, which, you know, for me, it was kind of the end of that. And actually it was when we became a technology company and we were selling, we were doing basically SaaS, we were doing kind of content as a service and, uh, that selling software did not get me out of bed in the morning. So that's not what fired you up. Right. It became the end for me. Is that how you transitioned to uh, reflection writing? Yeah. So, you know, obviously it was pursuing that management buyout from day one at Rock Creek. So I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, do I really want to do this for another 10, 15 years? Because that, that would be the timeline to pay it back and keep working there and then, and then retire. And 
the answer was no. And so we had this company we had started and it was, they were raising some money over there so they could afford to pay me. So I moved over to Roots Rated full-time for about two years. And then after that, I actually sold in one of the rounds where they were recapitalizing and they were moving to Atlanta. I knew I was out, but I had no idea what I wanted to do next. And my partner, Chris, and I went down to Puerto Rico and floated around in the ocean a bit and thought about it. And I left there with two takeaways. And one, it was time to be the boss. So I wanted to be the head of the organization, whatever I was going to do next, maybe work for myself, don't know. But I wanted to have the complete strategic vision. And then two, it had to be mission driven. Just making money was not enough of a motivator for me. I needed to make some money for sure. I'm not independently wealthy, but it had to be something that really motivated me. You know, it didn't have to be the outdoors, but that seemed like the obvious, you know, yeah. getting people outside is kind of the theme. So that was kind of what I was thinking. So I, I came back and luckily I didn't have a lot of pressure. I did have some money saved up so I could wait for the right thing and being able to give up on a dream too, because I mean, Roots Rated was, it was my dream. It was what I envisioned myself doing for a really long time. And so having some money saved up also helps you be able to pull the plug when things aren't working out. Let me ask you about that because your dream was roots rated and there's so many entrepreneurs out there who their dream is starting to have success. Then they get investors and things start Mm -hmm. to change and and it changes. Oh yeah. (laughs) And I would imagine that's a hard thing to deal with on a personal and professional level. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, luckily I had a little bit of practice because I had done it at Rock Creek because Rock Creek was my dream before that. (laughs) So uh, I had come to terms with the idea that what you thought was the future may not be, and it may not be what's right for you. So I had made that hard decision just two years earlier and it worked out great. I mean, it it was the right decision for me to leave Rock Creek, but I don't have a bunch of great wisdom about that other than just kind of searching your own soul and being able to turn the page is important. Being able to realize things change. Absolutely. We don't have a lot of time left, and I'm going to have to have you back to talk more about reflection writing. Sure. But if you can, first talk a little bit about how you got there and how you take the framework for the future and where you see it going in the future. Well, first off, I was consulting, which is just a fancy way of saying not working a lot. But, you know, I got the call from Dawson who said, hey, I'm on the board of this organization that needs transformational leadership. It's ready for it. And we have a, an open search process right now. They had a couple of people from out of town. He said, look, I know you're not looking, because I really wasn't looking for full-time work at the time. I was pretty burned out and ready to not work full-time for a while. But he said, hey, if you've come in and meet the folks and, and see the problem and you want to give it a few years of your life, put your hat in the ring and get into the process. And if you don't, if we bring somebody else from out of town, they're going to need to be connected with the community. So you could just be the contractor and consult with us to get this person kind of plugged in. You know, you can't really lose. Okay, why not? So went and met the board and I felt like it was such an opportunity that there's so much that could be done with this place. It's about 300 acres on the east flank of Lookout Mountain. So it's just over from St. Elmo on the other side, but it's inside the city limits. It's so convenient, but kind of hidden over there. And at the time, it was kind of forgotten about. And there were two different organizations that were historical. One of them was Reflection Riding, which is this kind of landscape park, this carefully laid out tour that you would do in your car originally when it opened in the mid-50s. And then there was the Nature Center, which started in 1980. 
And the two had kind of functionally merged, but for a long time, they had different visions, different boards, and never really totally agreed on kind of what was supposed to happen next. And the boards had come together. They kind of saw this vision that they needed to be one organization. And ultimately, I did kind of get obsessed with it. (laughs) And it was kind of one of those things where you're like, well, I hope they pick me because I'm going to show up anyways. And (laughs) so I went and met with... uh, Met with a lot of my contacts, a lot of people from foundations and people I had met along the way, got their read on what this place was, what it could be, and really kind of started that visioning work before they had hired me. So when I came in, I hit the ground running because I had already been thinking about it for about four months. So started in October and we spent the winter of 17 and 18 cleaning the place up, I brought in a lot of the technology that we had used in, in the startup world. So brought in Slack and Trello and that kind of stuff, you know, simple stuff. We did a couple of sprints and that whole OKR thing that Google invented. And we started to invite people back out. And it was really spring of 2018, April. We did a huge Earth Day festival. I called in every favor from everybody I knew. We had the whole outdoor industry there in Rock Creek and had a concert, had a hot air balloon. I mean, it was nuts. We hired Chattanooga Presents to put it all together. We had a few thousand people out there and we kind of asked, we asked a lot of the what if kinds of questions. And I actually, I just finished a book last night by Rob Hopkins called From What Is to What If. And Scott Martin actually gave it to me from Parks and Outdoors. The subtitle is Unleashing the Power of Imagination to Create the Future We Want. And reading this book just kind of put me back in that place. We asked what if... uh, I forgot exactly how we phrased it, but I wonder was the last one. And the first one was kind of a place to let people vent about what wasn't really working or what they were frustrated about. And the second prompt was more practical, like things that we could probably do now. And then there was the third prompt was all about no limits, no budget, just what if. Just that visioning process. Yeah, just what if we could do this. And so we ended up with some cool things out of that. One immediate one was we had parents that wanted outdoor learning for their preschool and kindergarten age kids. And there's this forest preschool movement that was kind of happening at the time. So we did it. We started a forest preschool there with the Wahatchee School. So they're up and running and they're thriving now on our campus and have a bunch of other locations too. And some of the things were smaller things, just tweaks to the membership and the ways that we engage with the community. And then as we kind of kicked that off and got more people interested and more people were starting to support it and uh, we grew our budget. We've now roughly doubled the budget, started hiring people. And then in right before COVID hit, we had come to this point where we felt like we've kind of reinvested in ourselves, cleaned things up, but we don't want to go too far and spend a lot of money, say renovating a building if that building's going to be torn down in the future. So we kind of hit this weird spot where we're like, well, we don't want to do a lot more until we really know what we're going to be when we grow up. And so we had that conversation about how do we plan for the future of forever and kind of what's next for the next generation. And so we hired a landscape architecture firm and then COVID hit. We shut down and we had the conversation about, do we want to wait? Do we want to do this now? And we were like, yeah, we'll just wait a couple of weeks and then we'll be fine. <laughs> so it turned out it wasn't a couple of weeks. And uh, when we got to the point where people were Zooming with their grandparents and everything, we figured, okay, let's just go forward and push forward with it. And there wasn't a lot happening. I mean, our visitation went through the roof, but it was more people wanting to reconnect and just walk Mm -hmm. together. Well, you offered a way for people to get out without 
you know, out into nature without a mask and feel like yeah. a bit of normalcy. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, you could kind of pretend like things were okay Yeah. <laughs> out at Reflection Riding, which, you know, is great. My takeaway from listening to you is two things happen here with you taking over Reflection Riding. You bring in your entrepreneurial background, that technology background, but you're also really utilizing what's become known as the Chattanooga way, that visioning process of bringing people in and hearing what they have to say. Was that intentional or just kind of happened? Yeah, I mean, it was intentional. I, I wouldn't probably have said it that way, but I, I did. You know, I have been here for 20 years in Chattanooga, and I've witnessed that Chattanooga way. Been and part and of I it, have, too. Yeah, and I've found that when you – well, I mean, this is a really easy for marketing. Like, if you ask people what they want and then you deliver it, you're going to look like a genius. Well, yeah. all you're doing is connecting people with the things that they're telling you that they want. And, of course, I've traveled and seen other nature centers, and, I mean, this is not a unique model that I think we have our own spin on it for sure, but there are all kinds of great best practices. And so – my kind of uh, philosophy there is that two prong, like don't reinvent the wheel, go figure out what those people are doing, what's working, what's not connect with your peers, uh, visit other locations, but then ask your community, what specifically do you want from us? And so we did, we did that whole planning process took, I guess about a year and produced the framework for the future, which was released about two years ago now and gave us that confidence to really go forward. And first off we put the entire property under a legal conservation easement. So if something happened, the organization failed, nature centers aren't relevant anymore, which I can't imagine. But if anything happened, the land is protected forever. So it will not become golf course condos, whatever, which would have been the easiest thing to do with it. So for generations to come, they're going to be able to go out there and observe the same thing, enjoy the same thing that we enjoy today. Absolutely. Well, it's a special place. And I'm going to hit you with the last question. And you probably already know what it is because mm-hmm. you've listened to the podcast. So what would you tell your 25-year-old self is important for a happy life? Well, I think make time for yourself and uh, probably more trail runs. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it really is important. I think you can get somebody with my personality can get completely consumed with the work. And the off time, the rest is absolutely critical to the success of the work. So you cannot get that out of balance. So take time for yourself, disconnect, and enjoy the moment you're in. God, that's so important. Mark, thank you. Fascinating conversation. And much like Framework for the Future, we haven't scratched the surface. So so I'm going to have to get you back. But I really appreciate you coming in. I appreciate the Velo Coffee, too. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to My Morning Cup, a podcast by Costa Media Advisors. If you liked this episode, please share it with a friend. I release a new episode each week, so be sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever you listen to podcasts.